Standing on the promises of Christ my King, through eternal ages let His praises ring. Glory in the highest I will shout and sing, standing on the promises of God. promises that cannot fail, when the howling storms of doubt and fear assail, by the living word of God I shall prevail, standing on the promises of God, standing, standing, standing on the promises of God my Savior, promises of Christ the Lord, bound to Him eternally by the strong cord, overcoming daily with the Spirit's sword, standing on the promises of God, standing, standing, standing on the promises of God, my Savior, standing. promises I cannot call, listening every moment to the Spirit's call, resting in my Savior as my all in all, standing on the promises of God, standing, standing, standing on the promises of
James chapter 2, and um, we all struggle with our humanity, don't we? Our humanness, if I can say it that way, and that's true in so many areas of our life, but we especially, I think, struggle in our thinking at times, and especially when it comes to assessing uh, people. This past week I met a, I read a uh, memorandum that someone wrote that illustrates what I mean. Uh, it says, To Jesus, son of Joseph, Woodcrafters Carpenter Shop, Nazareth. Uh, this is from the Jordan Management Consultants. Jordan Management Consultants. Dear Sir, thank you for submitting the resumes of the 12 men you've picked for managerial positions in your new organization. All of them have now taken our battery of tests, and we've not only run the results through our computer, but also arranged personal interviews for each of them with our psychologists and vocational aptitude consultant. The profiles of all tests are included, and you'll want to study each of them carefully. But as a part of our service, we make some general comments for your guidance, much as an auditor will include some general statements. This is given as a result of staff consultation and comes without any additional fee. It is the staff opinion that most of the nominees are lacking in background, education, and vocational aptitude for the type of enterprise you're undertaking. They do not have the team concept. We would recommend that you continue your search for persons of experience in managerial ability and proven capability. Simon Peter is emotionally unstable and given to fits of temper. Andrew has absolutely no qualities of leadership. The two brothers, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, place personal interest above company loyalty. Thomas demonstrates a questioning attitude that would tend to undermine morale. We feel that it is our duty to tell you that Matthew has been blacklisted by the Greater Jerusalem Better Business Bureau. James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus definitely have radical leanings, and they both registered a high score on the manic depressive scale. One of the candidates, however, shows great potential. He is a man of ability and resourcefulness, meets people well, has a keen business mind, has contacts in high places. He's highly motivated, ambitious, and responsible. And we recommend Judas Iscariot as your controller and right-hand man. All of the other profiles are self-explanatory. We wish you every success in your new venture. Sincerely, Jordan Management Consultant. We struggle with our humanity, don't we? Our humanness. Truly the Bible's correct when it says that God's thoughts are so much higher than our thoughts and His ways are higher than our ways. He sees, beloved, clearly. He sees perceptively. He sees perfectly. And what we need as believers is the mind of Christ. We need to pray and study the Scriptures seeking to think thoughts and assess things in line with His will and His wisdom. Why? Because we're Christians who still live here in a fallen, broken world. And we face choices that we must make on a daily, no hourly, no moment-by-moment -moment basis. We have choices to make. And here we are in our humanness, and sometimes we struggle and we can get it wrong. I mean, really wrong. Think about it. Out of all those men that Jesus selected, we say, we probably join him and say, Judas is Iscariot, he's your man. But we need the mind of Christ. And this brings us again to the book of James. And you know, James 
is a wonderful book. It's a series we're calling Practical Christian Living. Uh, This book of James is not just filled with high-sounding platitudes. No, it's Christian living in shoe leather. I like to think about it this way. It's, It's how to be a Christian not so much on Sunday morning at church before noon, though that's included, uh, James, it's how to be, live as a Christian on Monday afternoon at like 3.30 in the afternoon. And all you really want is a Snickers bar and a Mountain Dew and a nap. How do you live as a Christian in that moment when that's really all you want is just a snack and a, and a nap? Well, it's telling us here how to live as a Christian in the day-to-day grind of life. And today, James is going to deal with something, beloved, that many, us, many of us here will deny. We'll deny that we're guilty of doing this, but many of us are truly guilty of doing it. So what's that, preacher? Well, it's favoritism or being a respecter of persons or showing partiality to some over others or prejudice. And and I said that many of us will deny that. And in some realms, we're correct. We have no issue with that. But this is a very broad area. And it covers so many things that this idea of showing favoritism and partiality can happen in our lives without us even realizing that we're doing it. Why? Because many of us think when it comes to uh, things like favoritism or partiality or, or prejudice, we only think about maybe the color of a person's skin or their race. And we might say, well, I don't have any issues with that. But this is so much larger than that. It includes that, yes, but we can be guilty of showing favoritism when it comes to a person's social standing or lack thereof. Uh, We can show it toward those who are richer than we are or poorer than we are. Uh, This goes on a lot. We show it maybe to those who are of a different political party or persuasion than we are or to those who think differently or dress differently or speak differently. If someone's just different than we are, maybe where they're from or what state they live in or whatever, we can, maybe without even realizing we're doing it, We can show favoritism and partiality. On and on we could go. And and the sad thing is this goes on not only out in the world, it also goes on in the church. In fact, the interesting thing about it is this very practical book of James. When James gives his example here, he gives a story about two men who came to church. And favoritism is shown. And we'll see how they're treated differently. In fact, let's just read it together. And I think you'll see exactly what I'm saying here. James chapter 2, I'll begin reading at verse (coughs) 1. James chapter 2, verse 1. My brethren, so we know he's writing to believers here. My brethren, do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with partiality. For if there should come into your assembly a man with gold rings and fine apparel and There should also come in a poor man in filthy clothes. And you pay attention to the one wearing the fine clothes and say to him, you sit here in a good place. And you say to the poor man, you stand there or sit here at my footstool. Have you not shown partiality among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brethren. Do you hear his heart here? Listen, my beloved brethren. Has God not chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which He promised to those who love Him. But you've dishonored the poor man. Do not the rich oppress you and drag you into courts? Do they not blaspheme that noble name by which you're called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the Scriptures, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You do well. But 
If you show partiality, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point, he's guilty of all. For he who said do not commit adultery also said do not murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery but you do murder, you become a transgressor of the law. So speak and do, excuse me, so speak and so do as those who will be judged by the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who's shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. This is an incredible story, isn't it? It's incredible. Let me get your, uh, your bearings for a moment. I want you to notice and just get this down before we jump into the actual story itself. I want you to notice there that in verse 1, we're told what we're not supposed to do. Verse 1 tells us what not to do. We're not supposed to do this. My brethren, do not hold the faith of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with partiality. Let not, let, let, don't let that be a part of your Christian living, your life. Don't do that. Verse 1, don't show partiality. And then in verse 8, we're told what we are supposed to do. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Ye do well. So very simple, right, right away we know where we are. Don't show partiality. Love your neighbor as yourself. Don't do what verse 1 says. Do what verse 8 says. All right? Everybody's got our bearings now, right? And let's go into the story a little bit more. Let's go a little more deep in the story, this partiality, this favoritism, this prejudice. And I want to notice a couple of things with you about it. First of all, notice it was intentional. It was intentional. This was not an accident that happened here. A rich man, so let's think about in our setting here, in our sanctuary, a rich man walks in those doors back there. You can tell he's rich because he's wearing a, a, a tailored, beautiful suit of clothes. He's got a Rolex on his wrist. He's got a couple of large golden rings. He looks like money. He smells like money. And the greeters receive him happily, hand him a bulletin, wish him the very best. And then someone's standing back there and they hand him off and say, let me help you find a good seat. Now, I really wrestle with this illustration, though, because in our Baptist churches, you would think, well, where would a good seat be? <clears throat> so wherever you think a good seat is, we'll just leave it general. Front, back, halfway, wherever. But he's escorted to a nice seat in the sanctuary. Next comes another man. The door is open. Here is a man that does not look like money. In fact, he doesn't look like much. He has shabby stained clothes on. The greeters look at him, kind of cross-eyed a little bit, wondered about this fella. He may not, doesn't smell as nice as most people would spell, uh, smell, but they come in and someone greets him, whoever it may be, and they're handed off and said, listen, you know, why don't you sit over here in the corner? Why don't you sit here on the floor at my feet? Because that's what happens in this story. And you're thinking, well, this would never happen. This could never happen in a church. But it obviously can happen. It obviously has happened at some point, as this story is told. Sit at my feet. Now, beloved, all this was done intentionally. It wasn't done accidentally. And I've been thinking about this really hard this past week. Is all favoritism and partiality and prejudice, is it intentional? Is all of it intentional? I mean, here a decision is made. The rich man comes and a decision is made. Poor man comes and a decision is made. 
an intentional decision. I suppose, and I know we can accidentally offend somebody, accidentally offend someone. But the more I thought about it, when it comes to prejudice and favoritism and partiality, I think I'm safe in saying, and I'm almost saying all the time, but I'm not going to go that far because somebody may have some thoughts that I haven't thought about. I'm going to say this. The majority of times, it is intentional. Why? Because a choice is made. A choice is made. And we appoint ourselves as judges. But the sad thing is, we're not just in our judgment. In fact, look at what verse 4 says. Have you not shown partiality among yourselves and become what? Judges with evil thoughts. You're an evil judge with evil thoughts. And it is intentional. There's a second thing about this I want you to notice. It was not only intentional... It was also irrational. Verses 5 through 7 shows us this doesn't make any sense. Look at it with me. Listen, my beloved brethren, has God not chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which He promised to those who love Him? But you've dishonored the poor man. He's kind of setting up the divine perspective and the human perspective. God said this, you're doing this. Next next part. Do not the rich, verse 6, oppress you and drag you into the courts. Do they not blaspheme that noble name by which you are called? Now listen, we've got to remember that this statement here is not an all-inclusive judgment. What I mean by this is this is not saying, listen, all uh, poor people are great and all rich people are awful. That's not what it's saying at all. It's not saying that a person who is poor is automatically godly. It's not saying that a person who is rich is automatically ungodly. What James is doing for them here is talking about their time, their culture, their day, and what was true for many of those who were poor and rich. And by the way, I understand in that day they were mostly poor. Not as many rich. And not like in our day those who are in between. You were pretty much either poor or rich. And he shows them some truth. And he was reminding them of the truth about someone who's in Jesus Christ. You see, it kind of sets up the human and divine perspective. A poor person walked into that assembly and what they say, listen, you're poor, you sit at my feet. That's a human perspective. That's a human assessment. It's a sinful, evil thing. But God says to us in His Word here, listen, verse 5, He has God not chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which He promised to those who love Him. In other words, listen, you're treating that man or woman who's poor physically like a pauper. But in reality, because they have Jesus Christ, they are a prince. They're rich in faith. And you're wrong in the way you're treating them. And then he brings up the rich person. And he reminds them that many of the rich back in that day apparently are those who abused those who followed the Lord Jesus Christ. And what did they do? They invited them into the assembly. They said, listen, here's a great seat. Sit here. But in reality, he says, what? These are the people that oftentimes will drag you into court. These are the ones who will blaspheme the name of Jesus whom you love. 
He's saying, listen, men and women, what you're doing and showing this partiality, it's irrational. Now remember, don't get confused. Because in your mind, if you're not careful, you say, oh, what they should have done is brought the poor man in and said, listen, you take the good seat. And when the rich man walked in, they should have said, listen, you sit at my feet. No, that's not what he's saying at all. Remember, this is not just a blanket statement and judgment. What he's saying, beloved, is this. Don't treat the poor well and the rich poorly. No. Treat everyone with honor and respect. Regardless if they're rich or poor. Regardless how they're dressed. Regardless of what they have or do not have. How do we know that's what he wants us to understand from this? The very next verse. Verse 8. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you do well. In other words, it's not our position, not our job, to sit back and make these assessments and say, well, you're worthy of a good seat, you're worthy of a horrible seat. No, he says, listen, treat everyone with honor and respect. And can I just add something for a moment? That doesn't mean you agree with them in everything. Please understand that. When the Scripture says we're to love our neighbors ourselves, remember, love is not a feeling necessarily when it comes to this type of love. Love is a choice. Love is a choice. And so we're to love our neighbor as ourselves, regardless of how they're dressed or what they have. Let me just speak to you for a moment about the church. Did you know that the church, beloved, is one of the most unusual and beautiful places in all the world? Why? Because there's great diversity and unity. There's great diversity and unity. Think about it. How many places can you find in our world where people who are so different, now listen, so different, voluntarily and joyfully join together? They're not forced, they're not coerced, they're not conjoled, but they're joyfully coveting together. I thought about that. Well, what, where does that happen? Not many places I can think of. You say, what about school? They throw everybody in school together from all these different places. Now, remember I said what? They're not coerced, they're not conjoled, they're not forced, and they do it joyfully and voluntarily. I thought about an airplane. You've flown recently? Diversity? You're all on there! But how many joyful people have you seen on an airplane lately? No, so the church is different. Why? You have all this diversity. People from all different races and social standings and occupation and education levels and economic levels and, and all of these things who are so different and yet what happens? We stand as one in Jesus Christ. As brothers and sisters in Christ. There's great diversity, but there is unity in Christ. And beloved, there's no place for the church for favoritism and partiality and prejudice. We're to love God above all and love our neighbors as ourselves. And we will welcome everybody in the name of Jesus. Welcome all in the name of Jesus. What a wonderful thing the church is to think about how different we are outside these walls in so many ways. But because we're one in Christ, we joyfully covenant together as this church body. I'm thankful as a little child... I was taught this little song. Y'all probably sang it too. Jesus loves the little children. All the children of the world. Remember it? Red and yellow. Black and white. They are precious in His sight. Jesus loves the little children of the world. 
And even as a boy growing up and singing that song in Sunday school and vacation Bible school, it taught me, it reminded me, and all of us who sang it together, that Jesus died for all people. And anybody can be saved. And anybody can be a part of His family. You don't need credentials. It doesn't matter if you're highbrow, lowbrow, or nobrow. It won't help you when it comes to your standing with Jesus Christ. We all come the same way. Rich or poor, black or white, um, wealthy or not, educated or not. It doesn't matter where we grew up, where we're from. It doesn't matter where we live. What matters is Jesus Christ loved us and, and died for us and shed His precious blood for us. And He rose again and welcomes all who will come through Him and only through Him, through His shed blood and finished work upon the cross. We all come the same way. We oftentimes sing it in that old song, nothing in our hand we bring, simply to the cross we cling. I want to ask you, friend, I'd be remiss if I didn't. Have you come to Jesus Christ? Have you turned from your sin and placed your faith in Christ alone? If not, why don't you do that today? Why don't you do that today? Well, we're talking about partiality, favoritism, being a respecter person, prejudice. Why is it so awful? Well, I've already said it's intentional. You say, well, yeah. Say it's irrational. Well, maybe. Well, here's the real kicker. Here's the real reason it's awful and wrong because it's sinful. It's sinful. Look at verse 9. Say, well, I don't know about the irrational, I don't know about the intentional, but listen, can't get away from verse 9. But if you show partiality, what's it say? You commit sin. You commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. Now, when you think about this, when you're making a judgment upon someone like this, is that anything more, beloved, than the sin of pride? I mean, who am I? Who are you to consider someone beneath ourselves? A man or a woman, a boy or a girl, a teenager who's made in the image of God. Who, do we, who are we to become self-appointed evil judges to say, you know, this person is beneath me? We're to love people. Everyone that we meet is someone created by God and someone that Jesus died to save and wants to save. When you keep that truth in your mind, listen, number one, they're created in the image of God. And number two, Jesus Christ died for that person, loves that person, wants to save that person. That'll help us a whole lot not to be showing partiality and respect to persons and, and prejudice. Now, again, I said we're to love our neighbors ourselves. We don't have to agree with their lifestyle, what they choose to do or any of that. We're, cho- we're told to love them, not a feeling. But a choice. I'm going to love this person. I'm going to show respect to this person. I'm going to show honor to this person. We want to please the Lord, don't we? But we know that living with prejudice and partiality and favoritism in our hearts does not do that. And then we get to a set of verses, and I wish we had more time to unpack these, but I want to, I want to kind of go through them with you quickly. And I think out of all the verses here, these are the most difficult to understand. Because we understand so far the story. We understand what went on at this assembly. We understand why it's wrong. But then he throws in some verses that maybe just you're looking at it and thinking, well, where's this coming from? Look at verses 10 through 13. Remember the topic now, partiality. Then he says, for whoever shall keep the whole law 
and yet stumble in one point, he's guilty of all. And then I want you to notice what he brings up next. For he who said, do not commit adultery. Now, wait a minute. We're talking about partiality. Now he's talking about adultery. Also said, verse 11, do not murder. Wait a minute now. We've gone from partiality to adultery to murder. Then he says this. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so do as those who will be judged by the law of liberty, for judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Now, let me just unpack some of that for you real quickly. Number one, how does one sin make us guilty of all? That just doesn't seem to make much sense from our human point of view, right? Well, again, we struggle in our humanity, don't we? In our human thinking. We've got to remember when it comes to the law of God, it is a unit. It is a package. It's not pieces. Someone, somewhere I read it explained it. It helped me so much. It's like a window. You get a picture of a window in your mind. I really wanted to bring a window today and do this, but I thought it's not a good idea. But picture a window in your mind. Now, you have a window pane before you. Don't get any ideas, by the way, of what I'm about to tell you. Let's say you have a hammer in your hand. And you say, you know, I'm not going to, I'm just going to hit this window right here in this corner right here with this hammer. And you rear back and you hit the window with the hammer. Just in that one little spot, what happens to the window? It breaks. Depending on what kind of window, old-timey window, you might slice yourself to death. The new safety kind, it might just crumble in a million pieces. But the whole idea is this. When you hit it with a hammer just in that one little spot, you've broken it all. It's kind of a picture of what happens when we choose to disobey God. Because God's law is not just little pieces. It's a unit. It's a package. It's a totality. And when we break one, we've broken it all. John MacArthur said it this way about being guilty of all. Not in the sense of having violated every command. Because even it says here, right, you know, you don't commit adultery, but you murder. You didn't do both. But it's the sense of being guilty of all and the sense of having violated the law's unity. That one transgression, that one sin makes fulfilling the most basic command. Love God and love your neighbor impossible. Because you are a transgressor now of the law. You've broken the law. He says, listen, you can't just say, well, it doesn't matter. It does matter. Because you can do everything else this, that you want to do and say, oh, I don't do any of that stuff. But if you show partiality, you're a transgressor. You're guilty. You're guilty of all. Then verse 12. I'm going to walk you through it fast here. James encourages them and us to live like Christians in our relationships with other people. Look at verse 12. So speak, talking, and do as those who be judged by the law of liberty. What more is the law of liberty? We know the law of Moses. What's the law of liberty? Well, the law of liberty, beloved, is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ has set us free. It's the law of liberty. What does it set us free from? What does the gospel free us from? It frees us from our sin, doesn't it? And hell and condemnation and judgment. Because Christ kept the law of Moses, he kept the law perfectly, we have his righteousness now. And so it set us free, not only from sin and hell and all those things, but it also sets us free in another way. You know what it, how it sets us free? It sets us free to live out the commandments of God, not out of fear, but out of love for God. Why don't we show partiality? Because we love God. 
Why don't we commit adultery? Because we love God. Why don't we murder? Because we love God. We want to honor Him. We want to please Him. The law of liberty. And then it says what in verse 12? We'll be judged by the law of liberty. Hmm. Believers judged? Yeah. But listen, not for salvation. That's forever settled the moment you place your faith in Christ. But we're going to be judged at the judgment seat of Christ or the bema seat of Christ. So preacher, what's that all about? Well, it's concerning rewards. Receiving rewards. While we live for the Lord Jesus. Then the last verse, we've got to hurry. Verse 13. Here's where it really gets interesting. For judgment is without mercy to the one who's shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. What's that mean? Well, beloved, this must be talking about those who do not know Jesus. So how do you know that? Well, look at what it says again. For judgment is without mercy to the one who's shown no mercy. Can I just say to you, beloved, that if someone shows no mercy toward other people, they've never experienced the mercy of God in their life in the first place. If they show no mercy, you ever met anybody like that? I don't show any mercy. I don't forgive. Then you've never been forgiven. And you've never truly experienced the mercy of God. Why, beloved? Because when we realize what God has done for us, it says mercy triumphs over judgment. That's what God did in our lives. What did He do? His mercy... He sent His Son, the Lord Jesus, to die for us. It's triumphed over the judgment that was our due. Mercy, the mercy of God's triumphed over our judgment. Why? Because He laid our judgment upon Jesus. And as one preacher noted, beloved, the mercy we show testifies to our saving faith in Jesus Christ. We live a merciful life, a gracious, kind, loving life. It shows that we have experienced that kind of mercy ourselves. We've been forgiven much, so we forgive. We've been loved much, so we love. We've been extended mercy, so we show mercy. And beloved, here's the thing about it. If you cannot do that, if you cannot show mercy to somebody, you better check and make sure that you've received His mercy. Because when we received His mercy and really understand it, it's reflected in the way we live. The lesson here is simple. It's clear. Just put it in one sentence. There's no place for prejudice in the life of a Christian. There's no place for it. We're not to show partiality. We're not to show favoritism. We're not to show respect to persons. We're to love our neighbors as ourselves. And we've been freed to do that through the law of liberty, the gospel. And now we can love as He loved. And show mercy as we've been shown mercy. And grace as we've been graced. Father, thank you for these lessons that you've laid out before us here today. Search us, Holy Spirit, and show us any area of our life where we're guilty of showing partiality. Help us, Lord, to lay our lives open before you and be honest. And Father, if you point out areas, may we confess and repent. Help us, Lord, to have your mind to realize that 
these others around us, they've been created in your image. And Jesus Christ died for them and wants to save them. Your word says that you're not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. So help us to be merciful, gracious, kind, and loving. Help us to fulfill the royal law, to love you above all and love our neighbor as ourselves. Lord, tear down the pride in our life that would keep us this very moment resisting your working in our lives. And Father, if anybody here has never received Christ, may your Holy Spirit draw them to yourself even throughout this invitation, I pray. And may they repent of their sin and place their faith in Christ. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know what God is saying to your heart today, but I just encourage you to respond in faith. If you need to be saved, we'd love to help you with that. If you want to come and pray about something, we'd love to help you. If you want, just let us know. If you want to come pray on your own, that's fine too. But He is Lord. He is King. He has spoken. May we respond. 490 is our closing hymn. King of my life, I crown thee now. Thine shall the glory be, lest I forget thy thorn-crowned brow. Lead me to Calvary. I'm here to help if I can and pray with you. But let's stand together. 490, you respond as God leads you. Lead me to Calvary. Let's stand and sing 490.